Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Trapagan, and I'm joined by my co-host, John Kegg. Hey, John, how are you doing? Great, thanks. And thanks for having us again, John. Yeah. Um, For today's episode, we are delighted to welcome author, educator, and environmentalist Bill McKibben founder of Third Act, an organization focused on bringing together people over 60 for action on climate and justice, and also 350.org, a global grassroots climate campaign. Bill's work regularly appears in periodicals such as The Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, and he's written numerous books, the most recent being The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. Uh, I've wondered that myself. And um, it was, in fact, this book that got me thinking we needed to have Bill on the podcast because it's a brilliant analysis, not so much of how to be wrong, but how we in the U.S. have managed to get it wrong in the way we organize our society and also attempt to live up to perceptions and ideas about American values and ideology. Bill, we are delighted to have you on the podcast. Well, what a pleasure for me to get to join you guys. Thank you. So I'm, I'm going to begin with a little bit of self-disclosure. Um, my cousin, Nancy Long, who's a physician at the University of Vermont, gave me a copy of your book last summer, uh, noting that I grew up just down the road from you in the 1970s. I grew up in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. And she said, I find a lot that resonates with uh, my experience from that era. And I most certainly did. In fact, at times it felt like I was reading an episode of This Is Your Life. Um, <laughs> so we'd like to begin by asking if, if you could talk a bit about your ideas on the 1970s as a focal point for how America has managed to get it wrong and what it is that we've gotten wrong. Well, in the largest terms, it does seem to me that the 70s was a hinge moment And the hinge was between uh, two worlds. In the America that came through the Depression and the Second World War, and then the kind of growth of the 50s and the turmoil of the 60s, there was never a point when the basic thrust of American history was, we are engaged in a group project designed to make America better. We may have argued about what it should be and how it should work, but clearly that was the job. We were um, engaged in trying to build what FDR called a new deal, what LBJ called a great society, what Martin Luther King called the beloved community. Um, By the end of the 1970s, We'd abandoned that uh, in the most important election of my lifetime in 1980. We elected Ronald Reagan. And really, that was an announcement that we were now in a world where what counted uh, was individuals, uh, where government, which is just the word for all of us working together to solve our problems, had become the problem, not the solution, where, as 
Reagan's pal Maggie Thatcher said, there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women. And that's the world we've been living in to one degree or another ever since, though I think Joe Biden, bless his heart, is trying to uh, get us back uh, to an older idea. Uh, but that 40 years has been ruinous in many ways. At the end of it, we have comical levels of inequality. Uh, at the end of it, we have the ice caps, the top and the bottom of our planet melting. Um, we're in extraordinary trouble, and it's not trouble you could have predicted in 1970. Hmm. On this point, I, I wanted to ask a quick question. How do you balance or how how would you recommend balancing hmm. a robust and healthy suspicion of institutions and the way that they can go wrong versus um, a sort of perfunctory dismissal of all things institutional. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to that sort of tension. I'm thinking a little bit about Henry David Thoreau, where he says, well, we should uh, be suspicious of governmental practices. But it seems like in the Reagan years, something really went wrong with individualism. I was wondering if you might be able to say a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so the first thing is, we should be uh, we should be watchful and skeptical about governmental institutions, and we have good examples about how to do that. To go back to the 1970s, when uh, I was young, uh, I, the first big national drama I watched play out in a lot of ways was the Watergate hearings, and they were partisan and so on, but they weren't um, they weren't insane. Uh, eventually. Uh, rationality prevailed. And uh, in a bipartisan manner, people came together to say, no, you can't do that, Mr. Nixon. And he resigned and left, didn't storm the Capitol, didn't whatever. So we have plenty of examples in American history about how to do this. But I think that the, the, the bigger lesson of the Reagan years is it's probably even more important to extend that skepticism, that oversight uh, to the corporate realm, because it ended up with such enormous unchecked power that it was able to, in many respects, take over our, our government. You know, the area where I've worked hardest in my life is around climate and energy policy. And the story of our utter failure to do anything about the biggest challenge the world ever faced is largely the story of uh, unchecked and unregulated corporate power uh, coming to the fore in the Reagan years and afterwards. So this program is about how to be wrong. And I mean, I think we have plenty of things to talk about today <laughs> when it comes to societal uh, missteps. Uh, oftentimes with my students, and I know, John, you do this too, mm -hmm. um, you sort of ask them to sort of identify a place in their lives where they've been wrong, either professionally or educationally, um, personally. And we were wondering if you might be able to speak to that, um, that question as well. Can you think of a time in your life where you have been wrong and you've acknowledged it and it's influenced your outlook on your work um, or perhaps the failings of American society? No, I've never been wrong in my whole life. <laughs> um, um, there's many to choose from, um, but really the most... <laughs> 
important for me in a lot of ways, uh, concerns a, a largely wasted decade or so in my life. You know, when I was 27 or 28, I wrote a, a book called The End of Nature that was the first book for a general audience about climate change, what we then called the greenhouse effect. This was 1989, so a long time ago. And the book did well. It came out in 24 languages or something. It was a bestseller all over the place, excerpted in The New Yorker. Um, and and I was entirely right in the book, sadly. Um, you know, it, it, you, you could republish it today. It's still in print and gets republished on occasion uh, without really changing any of the science because we understood everything there was to know about climate change. When you burn fossil fuel, you put carbon in the atmosphere and its molecular structure traps heat. But, and here's where I went wrong, my overly naive understanding of the way the world worked and the way that change was made, I think stemmed from my background as a, a writer, as a journalist. Um, that predisposes one to want to try above all to win the argument. Uh, I think the reasoning, the sort of internal reasoning is uh, if we win the argument, if we assemble the facts and data and reason and evidence, uh, then eventually our leaders will do what needs doing because why wouldn't they? That's the reasonable way to behave. And so I dutifully set out to do just that. I wrote a bunch more books, gave endless talks, wrote article after article uh, um, all through the next decade or so. And at the end of it, looked up and realized that we'd long since won the argument. Um, the science about climate change couldn't have been clearer or more robust. We just lost the fight. Uh, because the fight, it turns out, wasn't about reason or evidence or data. The fight was about what fights are usually about, money and power. And the other side in this fight, the fossil fuel industry, had so much money and hence so much power that it didn't really matter to them if they won the argument or not. They were going to go on with their business model no matter what. And, and so at that point, I, I, I began what's become my most of my life's volunteer work anyway, which is building big movements. So we built first this thing called 350.org that became the first big global climate movement. We you know, organized 20,000 demonstrations in every country except North Korea. And then more recently, Third Act, which is doing great work with older people to organize them to stand up to power. But I look back often and think, man, I was a moron. Um, I should have figured that out much earlier. And I'm one of the reasons that we wasted very precious time. Uh, if I'd been a little cannier, I would have gotten on that work earlier. Now, who knows whether I would have had the wherewithal and the, you know, the kind of um, emotional and intellectual resources to actually do that work effectively when I was still in my 20s, I don't know. Uh, um, and I'm grateful for the fact that that decade, among other things, uh, let me 
get married and start a family, you know. Um, but in large terms, we should have gotten involved with this project of building movements much sooner. Uh, uh, and since this is a timed test, that's the single most distinctive thing about climate change. If we don't solve it soon, we won't solve it. I rue that loss of time um, regularly. That's a really uh, interesting observation, Bill. I, I think one of the things that strikes me is that um, I think most of us, you know, many of us who are interested in these kinds of, you know, issues and, and concerned about trying to solve our, our, our various problems tend to work from precisely that idea that, um, you know, if, if we can show with evidence that this is what we need to be doing, we would be doing it. And, you know, there's a certain, I guess it's easy to be sort of intellectually naive that other people are concerned with those same questions. I, I've always thought it strange that um, when I have arguments with people about, you know, the environment and that sort of thing and what we should be doing, it, it just seems to me like, well, wouldn't you just rather live in a clean world than a dirty, polluted world? Uh, you know, that seems really clear to me, but it isn't clear to everybody. And, and I think it's a really interesting observation. Yeah. Underestimating the d dynamics of actual power is yes. something that both journalists and academics are particularly prone to, I think. <laughs> or, yeah. And those are sort of my two worlds. And it's been, uh, it's been some work to kind of um, remind myself constantly that that's not exactly how the world works. Yeah. It, it, it's uh, I think I've, I've very much felt that many times. Um, I think it's, it's interesting that the way that you have addressed that is by, uh, moving into trying to develop organizations um, that that kind of put these things out into the world in a, in a more pragmatic way. I think it's really interesting that you developed an organization aimed at engaging the over 60 crowd. Uh, my, my son explained to me several months ago the meaning of the word or uh, the phrase, okay, boomer. Um, and, you know, the, the boomer generation does not have a particularly... Um, robustly happy image among a lot of younger people right now. And, um, it, you know, my, my son and my daughter both have said that there's a tendency to see the, the boomer generation as being rather privileged and rather self-centered. And so I'm curious if, if you could talk a little bit about the, the me generation, uh, that negative image, and, and why you went about developing this organization, Third Act, that's, that's directly aimed at engaging them in issues of social change. Well, uh, third act is in part a uh, response to some of those things that your uh, uh, kids talking about. Um, you know, I've done most of my organizing over the years in the climate movement with young people. Um, when I founded 350.org, I was in my 40s, but my seven colleagues were all college students. Uh and many of the people, most of them that we worked with around the world were probably young. We started, among other things, this massive fossil fuel divestment campaign to get institutions to sell their stock. It's become the biggest corporate campaign of its kind in history with about $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios uh, divesting from fossil fuels. An awful lot of that work got done at universities by remarkable young people who worked on their campuses and now, you know, Harvard and 
Princeton and Oxford and Cambridge and the University of California and pretty much every other university of note in the world has divested from fossil fuel. Those kids, when they got out of college, went on to form the Sunrise Movement that brought us the Green New Deal. And that Green New Deal in turn produced in shrunken down form, which sadly is the way things work, uh, this um, uh, final, finally a climate bill through Congress this summer. And then, of course, there's the even younger kids. Uh, you know the name Greta Thunberg, and you should. She's one of my favorite people on earth to work with, a, a remarkable, remarkable human being. But she'd be the first to say there are 10,000 Gretas around the planet. And I've met enough of them now to completely believe her. And they have 10 million followers. That's how many kids were out on school strike in September of 2019 before the pandemic hit. So the kids are doing their job. I just got tired of hearing people say, oh, it's up to the next generation to deal with these problems, which seemed A, ignoble, and B, impractical. Um, Young people, for all their energy, uh, and intelligence and idealism lack the structural power you'd need to make change on the scale we need to make change. But older people have a lot of that structural power. In this country, there are 70 million people over the age of 60. That's a population bigger than France, 10,000 more every day, which is more people than are born every day in this country. Um, and not only are they a lot of us, we punch above our weight politically, because we all vote. There's no known way to prevent older people from voting. And we also ended up with most of the country's resources, fairly or not, probably not so fairly. About 70% of the financial assets belong to the baby boomers or the silent generation above them, compared with about 5% for millennials. So if you wanted to take on Washington or Wall Street, and I'd like to do both, uh, it helps to have some people with hairlines like mine engaged in this work. Now, it's quite true that no one had made an effort to do this kind of progressive organizing among older people for a long time. Uh, not really since the 1970s in an organization called the Grey Panthers. And the reason is that political scientists have had this idea that people become more conservative as they age. There's a little bit of statistical evidence to back that up, and and uh, but not not I think uh, enough to discourage us. And we haven't been discouraged. In fact, just the opposite. We've made pretty remarkable strides in the course of a year. And the reason I've come to believe is because. Um, we're not your grandparents' grandparents. Um, if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s now, your first act was in this period of time of just remarkable social and cultural and political transformation, in the period of time when we saw the apex of the civil rights movement, when we began to take women seriously in public life, when we had the first Earth Day and the beginnings of modern environmentalism. If you doubt the power of those years, look at the things that the retrograde Supreme Court went after this past summer. Uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Gun Control Act of 1968, the Clean Air Act of 1971, and Roe v. Wade 1973. So at the beginning, our lives were marked by a real openness to change and liberation of all kinds. Now, 
your kids are correct, I think, and this is one of the themes of this most recent book of mine, that in our second act, taken as a whole with plenty of noble exceptions, um, we may have been more interested in consumerism than we were in citizenship. Mm. Fair enough. But that water's under the bridge. And now we emerge into our third act with resources, with a lifetime of skills, with time, which we may not have had before, and with, um, well, with an understanding that since we're now nearer the exit than the entrance, uh, we better think a little bit about what we're leaving behind. Legacy is an abstract concept at some level until you really start to understand that legacy is the world you leave behind for the people you love the most. And the world we're leaving behind is a shabbier world than the one we were born into. Uh, Our planet is in deep trouble, and so is our democracy. And so those are the two issues that we focus on at Third Act. And it's really been remarkable to see uh, people coming together uh, and coming together not to provide all the leadership here, in fact, to try and back up younger people as they do this work. Right now, for instance, we're engaged in this big campaign against the the big American banks, Chase, City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, that are the biggest lenders to the fossil fuel industry. We want them to stop because scientists have told them they have to. Uh, we can't build more fossil fuel infrastructure. But I, I was just down doing a, uh, we were doing a big demonstration outside a bunch of these banks uh, in New York. And, you know, the march had a bunch of high school kids because they completely get this. And they're somewhat spryer, so they were at the head of the march. But at the back, there was a big group of us with a banner that said fossils against fossil fuels. Uh, you know, so we're determined to play our part and play it uh, well and with a sense of humor. Bill, could you say a little bit about um, the personal or psychological drivers that might um, get an individual? Uh, so, for example, those involved in the third act to actually get involved. I'm thinking a little bit about intellectual humility as being one of those potential drivers. And we've had inter- interesting discussions on this podcast about inter- intellectual humility and talked to people, various people from um, an Air Force general to presidents of universities about um, the importance of intellectual humility. And I'm wondering in your um in your work, how does it function and where have you seen it um, as a necessity and when do you need to put it aside? Well, I think that it's important for people of my generation to have, a, you know, a kind of thorough analysis of what went wrong. Um, you know, if you're in your, if you're 80 now in this country, Uh, you've been alive for the production of about 85% of the carbon that's now uh, heating the atmosphere. Um, You know, it's basically in the course of our lifetime that we've created the single largest problem that humans have ever come up against. And we know some of the habits of heart and mind that got us there, you know, Uh, the 
desire for, as I said earlier, a kind of hyper-individualistic approach to the world uh, that made it fine for people to you know, go out and build bigger houses than they needed and buy more stuff than made sense and, uh, you know, not pay attention to the rest of the world because we'd been assiduously told that markets take care of all problems. Why would we need to, you know? Um, and, and so we didn't. And accounting for that, understanding that, having some sense of generational obligation is a good idea. But it's also at some point um, useless just to beat yourself up about it too. Uh, you know, we live in the world that we're trying to change. Um, uh, and if you need to, you know, get on an airplane to go do the work you have to do to make that change happen, then, you know, um, suck it up, do it and, and, and get on with it. Um and and so I, I I I think that there's lots of room for introspection, but I think that when introspection becomes uh, crippling, when it uh, becomes paralyzing, then it's a then it's a problem. So you know um, we try to be um, <laughs> we try to we try to keep moving forward all the time. Mm-hmm. And we do it, you know, part of the thing that makes that uh, easier and more possible is uh, a, a focus on joy as well as humility. Um, one of the things that people like your children, when they go on and on about the boomers with me, I'm, I always just nod and say, yes, yes, I understand just what you're saying. Um, but sometimes if I'm in a particular mood, I'll say, um, on the other hand, you do have to admit that at the very least, our generation produced the best music there ever was. Um, <laughs> and and that's why it's really fun that, you know, as we're doing this work to have Patti Smith and Neil Young and uh, Carol King and uh, on and on and on helping out, pitching in uh, Patti Smith. There's still a lot of those people, uh, uh, cultural icons left around with that kind of power and exuberance and and so on. And um, sometimes um, good music like that uh, is, and loud music sometimes is a good antidote to uh, too much uh, introspection and and too much uh, licking of wounds. So, John, uh, you wanted to ask a question, I think, about uh, Jack McGuire, right? Yeah, I did. So Jack and I um, met about a year ago in Concord's uh, Colonial Inn, which I gather was, you know, a hop, skip and a jump from where you grew up, Bill. And Mm -hmm. um, Jack is now in his 80s. And I believe uh, he was there with you um, in Lexington when you ran into one of your first um, instances of uh, civil disobedience. And I was wondering, you recount this, I believe, in your most recent book, but I was wondering if you might be able to say a little bit about what happened uh, on that day with Jack. Sure. Uh, so more the story of my father than of me, but I indeed was there. Uh, and it's an interesting story. This was at the height of the protests about the Vietnam War in 1971. So I would have been 10. Um, and the Vietnam veterans against the war 
led then by a lanky, handsome, charismatic, young, recently returned lieutenant named John Kerry, uh, wanted to bivouac on Lexington Green as part of their symbolic protest against the war. And the town fathers, and I believe they were all fathers in those days, uh, said, no, you can't do it. It's against the rules. Uh, and they sent police in to arrest these Vietnam veterans, at which point hundreds of townspeople, including my father, uh, a mild-mannered business reporter, uh, um, sat down there too and got hauled away in handcuffs. Um, and I've never forgotten that night. It was out of character for my father, but it was dramatic. And it to me, symbolized what I said before, this kind of idea of America as a group project that we were at work on trying to make the world a better place. Um, and I, I, I'm sure that that stuck with me and has something to do with the fact that, as it happens, I've ended up in handcuffs on a great many occasions in the course of my life. Um, the sadness in Lexington was that that quite noble moment was paired six weeks apart with the town-wide vote on whether or not to allow affordable housing, low-income housing in the town, in this wealthy bedroom community outside Boston. And the people of Lexington voted that down two to one again in 1971. And to me, that symbolizes what we were talking about before, the two different ways our country could have gone. Uh, one down this path of trying to build a better and and uh, and gentler place, uh, the other down this path around property values and uh, you know uh, individual rights and and so on and so forth that had little room for that, and that was the story in some ways that those two stories that got me writing this most recent book, and I think about them often. Um, I'm very grateful uh, for that early experience. Among other things, it did attune me to the fact that movement building was a really important thing. You know, I think looking back, the two great inventions of the 20th century were the solar panel, which will save us if anything saves us, and the nonviolent social movement pioneered by people like the suffragists and Gandhi and Dr. King and a million other people whose names we don't know. Uh, uh, and, and uh, it, you know, if we're going to make change on the scale we need to in this century, it'll be drawing on that legacy heavily, I think. As a, as a quick follow-up to that, I was wondering... I mean, this might seem slightly off topic in terms of uh, humility or, you know, intellectual humility, but I, I'm wondering about um, the, the place of fear in the hesitancy to join social movements. Mm. And it seems to me that early um, experiences like the one you just described might give someone the sense that they can face what might be um, a cause for fear and then uh, be brave enough to actually, um, you know, stay the course. And I'm wondering um, if you've seen individuals overcome the fear 
of social change or the fear of being arrested or the, you know, the fear of having to change their lives um, in sometimes radical ways um, in the course of your uh, work and how fear plays in that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so often, you know, so let's do, well, let me talk specifically about civil disobedience, because it's not the most important tool in the toolkit of activists, but it's probably the most dramatic. And for many people, it does represent a kind of crux moment. Um, the, um, there is something quite remarkable about, you know, sitting on a piece of pavement and a policeman comes and tells you to move. And if you were brought up like I was uh, in sort of uh, normal middle-class America, uh, the instinct to do what uh, authorities would like you to do is very strong. <laughs> and as it probably should be, you know, in a normal in a normal society, you don't want people, uh, uh, you know, just willy nilly disobeying the rules that we've agreed upon. <clears throat> but there are moments when that's necessary. And it does take a certain amount of sort of stealing yourself just to, um, just to ignore that uncomfortable feeling. Never mind that in many cases, it also may make it harder for you at work or whatever else. That's one of the reasons that we've been. We one of the reasons that I think organizing older people is is uh, often um, really useful. You know, I put together, helped put together, the first big demonstrations against the Keystone Pipeline, a big oil project. This was about a decade ago, and it turned into. I, I wrote the letter asking people to come to Washington and get arrested in what turned into the largest civil disobedience action about anything in this country in a very long time. 1,200 and some people went to jail. <clears throat> when I wrote the letter, I said, I don't think young people should have to be the cannon fodder here uh, because you know, if you're 19, it's possible that an arrest record is really not the best thing for your resume. One of the few unmixed blessings of growing older is Past a certain point, what the hell are they going to do to you? Um, fear becomes maybe a, a less um, salient, not a not non-salient, but less salient emotion. And so it was fun to watch uh, people of a certain age uh, flood into D.C. We did not ask people as they were getting arrested, "How old are you?" Because that would have been rude. But we did cleverly, I think, say. Who was president when you were born? And the two biggest cohorts were from the FDR and the Truman administrations. Uh, the last day there was a guy arrested with a sign around his neck that said, World War II vet handle with care, uh, which he was old enough that he'd been born in the Warren Harding administration, which was a very long time ago. I'd almost forgotten there was a Warren Harding administration. Um, so, it was, it was a powerful moment for young people who were there to see their elders acting in the ways that we probably need elders to act in a working civilization, including somewhat fearlessly. Uh, that should be one of the, one of the 
uh, hallmarks, I think, of aging, because let's face it, uh, at a certain age, you literally have a lot less to lose (laughs) than you do when you're younger. That's really interesting. It reminds me of um, after the 2011 disaster in Japan and the uh, meltdown of the Fukushima, uh, you know, power plant, uh, there were uh, large numbers of older people who were lining up to try to go into the areas where the radioactivity was to help with things. And their their argument was, well, you know, we've lived long lives and, and we're willing to sacrifice at this point because we don't have that much time left. And so, um, you know, they felt that that was... A- yeah, I think that's a much better attitude than the, um, I'll tell you my least favorite bumper sticker. Maybe you've seen this one on Winnebago's and stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it says, I'm spending my kid's inheritance. Um, right. You know, ha, ha, ha. Uh, that's about as <laughs> vile a creed as <laughs> one could come up with, it seems to me. I agree. I, I think when as we get older, you know, we, we have the time, we have the resources, um, and hopefully with the energy to try to do things to make the society better. And and I think it's an obligation. I don't think it's just something that's nice to do. I, I think it's a responsibility. Um, and I think, I think this, you know, the, the work that you're doing really captures that. I, I think this is a, a wonderful uh, development. Um, Bill, this has been an, an incredible conversation. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to add that we, we haven't covered. Um, maybe something you know you can let our audience know that you're working on now with your writing or, or other work. Um, what What's up for the future? Uh, well, first of all, it's been a wonderful conversation and it's gotten me in places I hadn't thought about or imagined before. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Um, no, we've, I mean, we've talked about the important things. Um, I, I I hope that people will listening will uh, tell their parents or grandparents about this third act work, mm. because among other things, it's just proving to be a wonderful source of, of pleasure uh, for the people who are engaging in it. Um, you know, there's a... Um, tendency in our society to imagine that your uh, uh, life gets less important or less real somehow uh, when you're older. Um, But that's not true. Your mind and your heart are every bit as vivid as they ever were, uh, even if your body isn't quite. And, And so it's a remarkable opportunity. One of the things we did this year that I just exemplified that for me that I really loved was this program we were calling Senior to Senior. We'll keep doing it. Um, When we have older people writing high school seniors, telling them um, stories about what voting has meant in their lives and times when it's mattered over the course of their lives and encouraging them to register because only about 10% of high school seniors who are eligible manage to register for their first election. And somehow to me, that, that kind of passing along, uh, passing along a, 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 a torch um, is, is kind of, it's important work, but it's also just kind of beautiful work and, and meaningful. And it's been fun to watch the relationships springing up and the, and the, those kind of things happening. It, it's possible, among other things, that, <laughs> that that 
the relationship, I think the relationship between uh, grandparents and grandkids is somewhat easier than the one between parents and children. <laughs> and so it's possible that kind of skipping a generation in this way uh, makes makes uh, all, all this work a little uh, uh, a little easier. So pass the word along and and uh, people will enjoy it, I think. Bill, Bill, that um, comment about senior to senior, those letters might be in an amazing collection to come out as a book before the general election. <laughs> um, it, it, Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I couldn't have enjoyed it more. Thanks to you guys very much. Thank you, Bill. All right. <laughs> All right. We will uh, see you down the road.